Uh, during this season of Lent, we're finishing the Gospel of Mark, but we have purposefully left the last three chapters for Lent and Easter because they deal with the passion of Christ, His suffering and His death. And so today we find Jesus praying in a garden at night right before His arrest. Arguably, nowhere else in the Gospels do we see the humanity of the Son of God as clearly as we see here in Gethsemane. So let me read our passage to us. Mark 14, verses 32 through 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer, as is at hand. I find this passage to be striking and moving. I hope that it moves you as well. I find this passage to be theologically deep and allowing us to understand who Jesus is. And I find this passage to be one that can move us towards Jesus and spur us on to follow him more closely. When Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, this was his regular, usual place to pray. But at this time, during this prayer, his experience was different. Gethsemane literally means an olive press or an oil press. It was likely that Jesus prayed along the olive groves in a place where people would gather olives, put them in a press, and these olives would be crushed and squeezed so they could get oil out of them. And Jesus, too, in that place on that night, was put under unimaginable pressure and stress. He, too, was pressed and squeezed So this morning, I want us to look at this passage and learn about the pain of Jesus, 
I want us to learn about the prayer of Jesus. And finally, the purpose of Jesus. His pain, his prayer, and his purpose. Now right away, as you start reading this passage, you see the, the forceful words that Mark is using to show us what Jesus was feeling. In verse 33, Mark tells us that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to Peter, John, and James in verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Meaning that his emotions were so strong that it felt like he was at that, that point of death. In verse 35, we learn that he fell on the ground as he prayed. The Jews often raised their hands in prayer. Here we find Jesus prostrate on the ground praying. Now what happened? What was Jesus thinking about that produced such emotional distress? What made him describe his sorrow as that that is close to death? What was so heavy on his heart that pushed him down and pressed him against the ground in prayer? Now the answer is clear, and it's found in verses 35 and 37, because Jesus was praying for the hour to pass from him and for the cup to be removed. Now the hour, of course, refers to the culmination of his earthly ministry, his death on the cross. You hear Jesus talk about the hour coming, or the hour is not yet, throughout the Gospels. He knows that he is about to be arrested, tried, sentenced, and executed. But what is the cup? Why is he dreading the cup? Now, in the Bible, the cup is a metaphor for God's judgment, for God's wrath. For example, in Isaiah 51, verse 17, we read, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Now here it's clear that the cup is an image of God's wrath, and, and the people under his judgment drink it, and they stagger. In Jeremiah 25, verses 15 through 16, we read, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make, it, make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Here the cup is the punishment, the judgment, the wrath of God, the sword of God's violence against them. And in this prayer in Gethsemane, Jesus was faced with the prospect of suffering and dying. Yes, that's the hour. But even more so, he was faced with something that was much more horrific and that is the experience of the judgment of God on human sin, of drinking the cup of God's wrath on behalf of sinners. Now, of course, Jesus knew. He knew he was going to die. He knew that his death was going to be in place of sinners. Uh, you may remember this is happening over the Passover holiday, so they just had the Passover meal. People are bringing animals to be sacrificed in the temple. Everybody's thinking about sacrifices and God 
shielding them from his wrath. Everybody's remembering the story of Israel leaving Egypt and putting the blood of the lamb on the doorposts so that the destroyer would pass over them and they wouldn't die for their sins. And of course, Jesus knows and he identifies with the lamb in that story. He knows he's the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice meant to shield God's people from God's wrath. He knows that. But here in the garden, he is given a preview of what it will be like to face the fury of God's anger against sin. It's one thing to know what's coming, but it's quite another thing to feel it, to get a glimpse, to realize as fully as possible without going through the experience what is coming. Listen to Jonathan Edwards in his great sermon on the agony of Christ. He says, A sense of that wrath that was to be poured out upon him and of those amazing sufferings that he was to undergo was strongly impressed on his mind by the immediate power of God so that he had far more full and lively apprehensions of the bitterness of the cup that he was to drink than he ever had before. And these apprehensions were so terrible that his feeble human nature shrunk at the sight and he was ready to sink. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. Now, why was Jesus given this preview of God's judgment on him of preview of hell so he could knowingly consciously intentionally choose to fulfill God's will of saving his people by putting their punishment on his son you see Jesus knew what his mission was well now he got to see it before he, he got to feel it so he could choose it knowingly being aware of what would happen and what would cost him. Listen to Edwards again. When he had a full sight given him what that wrath of God was that he was to suffer, the sight was overwhelming to him. It made his soul exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Christ was going to be cast into a dreadful furnace of wrath. And it was not proper that he should plunge himself into it blindfold as not knowing how dreadful the furnace was therefore that he might not do so God first brought him and set him at the mouth of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners as knowing what it was. This is the kind of agony that Jesus experienced in Gethsemane. 
It was a preview of being under God's wrath. It was a preview of drinking the bitter cup of God's judgment. It was a preview of receiving the full punishment for humanity's sins. That's why he fell to the ground. That's why he couldn't stand and raise his hands and pray to his Abba that way. The pressure was so great, he had to lie down. He had to fall. He had to plead with the Father from the ground. That's why he sweated blood, as Luke tells us. The emotional distress was so great that it affected him physically. His body was breaking down. His mind was breaking down. This is a, a level of anxiety, a level of distress that very few of us can even imagine. That's why he was so greatly distressed and troubled, because he saw what was awaiting. This preview of hell. That's why he was hurting. Now, what did he do with all that pain? Let's look at his prayer. He took it to his father. Here's what we see in this anguished prayer. We see two natures of Christ. We see two gardens, and we see two Adams. I'm going to unpack it, and I hope it's helpful to you. But I think there's a lot of good theology here that helps us understand what is happening here. Two natures, two gardens, and two Adams. Probably the main question most Bible readers are concerned with, maybe you are as well, is this. How can Jesus' will be against the will of the Father? How can it be that Jesus is praying for the Father to not do something he knows the Father wants to do? Is Jesus opposing the Father? Is the Son going against the Father? If Jesus is God, does he not know? Does he not desire the cross himself? Has he not himself agreed to this plan of salvation, participating fully in, in it? Why is he praying that if it were God's will, if it were God's will that this cup will be removed from him? What is he asking? Why is he praying this prayer? I mean, is it not why he came? To die for sinners? And is he not God that he knows what's going to happen? Is there division or disagreement within the Trinity? Now, it makes sense if he were only human. If Jesus is only a human being, yes, it makes sense. But what doesn't make sense is his sacrifice. If he is just a human being asking not to die, asking not to suffer God's wrath, it makes perfect sense. Except that the cub doesn't make sense. The hour doesn't make sense. Why would a human being die for the sins of others? Why would his sacrifice be sufficient to cover our sins? So somehow, we got to figure out what's happening here. What is this prayer about? Now, the early church wrestled with trying to understand the humanity and the divinity of Jesus and how those come together. And eventually... All those controversies were settled at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And the orthodox position, the biblical position, is known as the definition of Chalcedon. And all Christians agree with this and are grateful for the 5th century 
bishops and pastors and Christians who came up with this definition because it helps us to define how to understand Jesus and it protects us from many heresies. Now this is the position. This is the definition of Chalcedon. That Jesus is one person with two distinct natures, divine and human. He is one person. He's not divided. He's not confused. But he has two natures, one divine, one human. These two natures are distinct. They're not mixed together, nor are they separated. And yet those two natures are in one person. Now some, some say, well, that's just Byzantine bishops, you know, complicating things and coming up with these metaphysical ideas. Who needs it? We'll just read our Bible and, and stick with the simple words of Scripture. I mean, that's a noble pursuit. But you, what you will find is that you come to a passage like Mark 14 in the, in the prayer in Gethsemane, and you have to somehow explain that. What is happening here? And it places you right into that early church controversy. What is Jesus doing here? Is he human or is he divine? Why is he arguing with the Father? What is he pleading for? Why is he agreeing to, to submit to the will of God? Is he not God himself? And so let's unravel it. How should we understand the Gethsemane prayer in light of the Chalcedon definition? We should understand this prayer as Jesus' human will submitting to Jesus' divine will. In his humanity, Jesus struggled to face death and the wrath of God. Is it sinful? Absolutely not. Human beings were not made to experience death. Death scares us, and it should scare us. It's not a normal thing. Human beings were not created to go under the wrath of God and be punished for their sins. We were not created to sin. And so what Jesus is, is expressing here is a natural, genuine human reaction to the prospect of death and God's judgment. He's actually being perfectly consistent with his human nature. He says, Father, I know all things are possible to you. He says, I know that you created this world exercising your power and wisdom without sin, without your judgment. And yet here we are. I'm about to face your judgment and I'm about to experience death. And in his humanity, he's asking the right thing. He's praying the right prayer. Remove this cup from me. Let this hour pass from me. But look at what Jesus prays next. If he were only human, he would just stop right there. But then he prays, Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will in my humanity, in my human tendency to avoid death and to avoid your judgment. Not what I will, but what you will. And so he submits his human will to the Father's divine will. What we see in the Gethsemane prayer is the two wills of Jesus, the two natures of Jesus, divine and human, being perfectly united in one person without either losing its distinctive essence. 
This is an amazing passage to understand who Jesus is and how the divine and the human natures are actually in one person. You see it in this short prayer. As one church father puts it, thus as a human being, he prays in a human manner that the cup may pass away. But as God from God, his will is in unison with the Father's effectual will. That's amazing. It's a window into the natures of Christ, into his person, into how he functioned. In his humanity, he says, remove this cup from me. But then that humanity is submitted to his divinity, and he says, not what I will, but what you will. And he submits. Now, doesn't Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane remind you of another garden? Do you remember what happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? Adam and Eve, in their humanity, wondered why they could not eat of the tree that the Lord told them not to eat of. But instead of submitting their human wills to God's, they said, yet not what you will, but what we will. It's no accident that Jesus is praying in a garden before he was taken and nailed to the tree. Because Jesus came to undo what Adam did in his garden by another tree. We see this perfect biblical symmetry of one Adam refusing to submit his human will to God. And the last Adam, the new Adam, the second Adam Christ, submitting his human will to God's. Here in the olive press of Gethsemane, Jesus emerges as the second Adam, the new representative of humanity. Where Adam failed, the new Adam succeeded. Where Adam sinned, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam gave into temptation, Jesus resisted. Where Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. We see in this prayer the two natures, the two wills, and the two gardens, and the two Adams. One that failed in the Garden of Eden, and one that succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane. We actually see here how humanity is supposed to work how our human nature is supposed to work. We are not going to be made unhuman in glory. We're going to remain human, but our humanity will be in perfect harmony with the Spirit of God. Whenever you wrestle with sin and temptation, which Jesus actually is telling the disciples, watch and pray so you don't fall into temptation, so you can resist it. He's saying, be aware, be awake, be connected to me. Don't disconnect yourself from me. Because why? Because if we rely on our flesh, we will fail as Adam did. But if we rely on the Spirit of God and we submit our flesh to Him, we will succeed. Because this is actually how we're made. We're not going to be deified and our humanity is just going to disappear. Oh no. Our humanity is going to be made perfect under the complete authority and good rule of God. And we will live in harmony, being fully human, because sin makes us less than human, 
But in glory, we'll be fully human because the Holy Spirit will rule over us completely. And we will always defer to His will. Now, you see the new Adam projecting that and telling us, this is what is to come. You will be like me. In your humanity, you will submit to God and you will be perfectly obedient to Him. But we see the disciples acting like the old Adam. The new Adam is praying on their behalf, but, but the old Adam is sleeping. The old Adam is given into temptation. The old Adam can't stay awake for an hour. And notice the grace of Jesus. He comes to them and he says, can you not stay awake for an hour? I mean, I've asked you just to watch and pray. Just be awake as I pray. Pray with me. And yet he finds them sleeping. But graciously he says, I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is so weak. He's saying something else needs to be done here to give you a stronger spirit, to give you a different kind of guidance, to give you a different kind of life that can transform even your sleepy flesh. Such grace and such truth here pointing exactly to our nature. Yes, our flesh is weak. And yes, maybe our spirit is willing. But we need the Spirit of God to transform both our spirit and our flesh. And so it's these people, these sleepy disciples who can't even stay awake as Jesus is suffering and sweating blood. They can't even stay awake for an hour. It's people like us. It's people that know what to do, and we know what's right, and we can't do it. It's people who say, I will pray, and we fall asleep. I will read the Bible, and our mind is somewhere else. I will serve my neighbor, and I serve myself. It's these half-hearted creatures that Jesus came to save. Jesus came to die specifically for people like us so he could unite us to himself so we can share in the new humanity he came to restore Jesus's mission is not improvement it's not to teach us how to pray better it's not to teach us how to how to observe a vigil and stay awake all night and pray he's going to transform our natures He's coming to bring the Holy Spirit who will along with our spirit submit to God's will, our flesh. He comes to bring us into a new existence, into a new life, what he calls the eternal life, to become part of this new humanity, part of this new kingdom. This is what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus got a preview of hell in Gethsemane so he can give us a foretaste of heaven. And that brings us to the purpose of Jesus. While our salvation was accomplished on the cross of Calvary, it was settled in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is really important. Notice how Jesus changes his demeanor from the prayer in Gethsemane, in Gethsemane to his trial, to all the accusations and torture that is to come. He is calm throughout. He is he is resolved to fulfill God's will. So whatever needed to be decided, whatever needed to be settled, 
Whatever he needed to wrestle with and work through and submit his human will to God's actually happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. So yes, the cross is where our sins are taken away. And you see the anguish of the cross. But there is no anguish of the cross without the anguish of the garden. After experiencing the agony of facing God's wrath and working through it in prayer, Jesus leaves the garden resolved to fulfill his mission. Look at verses 41 and 42. After he finds the disciples sleeping for the third time, he says, it's enough. It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus is here ready. Ready, resolved to face God's wrath on the cross. He had looked into the furnace of God's wrath, and he's now ready to be thrown into it. In, in the imagery of Edward's sermon, God took him to the mouth of the furnace like in the days of Nebuchadnezzar. And he let him see the intensity of the heat. He let him feel the heat and, and see the glow of the light of the furnace. Now Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen in there. And he had to wrestle with it, but now he's ready to be thrown into it. Within hours or perhaps minutes here, he would be betrayed by a friend, abandoned by all his disciples. They would not just fall asleep. They would actually physically run away. He would be falsely accused. He would be lied about, slandered, sentenced to death. After that, he would be mocked, tortured, and shamed publicly. Jesus would be fastened to the cross with nails so he couldn't move. And there on the cross, he would thirst, he would struggle to breathe, and eventually he would die. And as he was dying, he would cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you know that Jesus typically addressed God as Father? Abba, Father, we see it in the Gethsemane prayer. And yet on the cross, he doesn't address him as Father. He addresses him as God. God has forsaken the sinful humanity represented by Jesus. And Jesus is beginning to bear the weight of it. Even as he is dying on the cross, he's feeling the weight gets greater and greater. And the wrath of God gets hotter and hotter until he is crushed by God's justice like olives in an olive press. Until he is destroyed by God's wrath. Until he is incinerated by God's fury. But as he dies, his arms remain open to us, welcoming us in love to come and receive the forgiveness, to come and receive the new life that he came to offer to all who would receive him. His body, after his death, would be placed in a tomb in another garden, not coincidentally, not randomly, is Jesus praying the prayer of submission to God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And then after he dies on the cross, his body is placed in another garden. And you remember what happened next, right? You remember Mary coming to care for the body of her Savior. Now Mary is in great distress. So high is her anxiety, so great is her anguish, she doesn't recognize Jesus when the risen Jesus appears to her. She thinks he's a gardener. And she says, sir, please just tell me where you put him. I just want to care for my Savior. Just tell me where you put the body. I'll go get it. I'll take care of it. Don't hide it from me. Let me grieve. But she's so overwhelmed with grief that through her tears, she can't see that it's Jesus standing with her. And when does she recognize him? When he calls her by name. When he says, Mary. And she says, teacher. Because in that garden, that new life is already flowing in the hearts of people. The resurrected Jesus is meeting us in another garden. And he's meeting us in a garden to give us life, not death. Because on the tree, he gave his life so we would not die. But that he would live through us and that we would live with him forever. How do you respond to Gethsemane? Are you moved by this passage? Are you moved by the realities of Jesus' two natures and two wills, of the symmetry of the two gardens, of Jesus taking on the representation for us, of him saying, I am the new Adam. I am the last Adam. There's going to be no more Adams after me because in me, humanity can be renewed and restored. Does that move you? Does that move you so much that it moves you from the old Adam to the new? Because that's what it's here for, is to move you from the old humanity into the new, is to affect your heart so much that you would say, I no longer want to be like the old Adam. I don't want God to see me in Adam. I don't want to be the sleepy, half-hearted creature who can't stay awake for an hour in my Savior praise. I don't want my human nature to be above the Holy Spirit. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done, God. Does it move you so much that you go to Jesus and the reality of what happened in Gethsemane and the reality of what happened on Calvary crushes you into repentance? So you fall down and so you lie before him and you pray. It brings you so low that you can only look up when you talk to God. There's nothing left of you. And so you look to God and you pray to him. And you say, Father, thank you for sending Jesus, the God-man who wrestled in the garden so he can restore life to us. Are you part of the old Adam or the new one? Are you still in the Garden of Eden, sinning against God? Or are you in the Garden of the Resurrection of Christ where he calls you by name and you fall before him and hold on to his feet and say, don't ever leave me again? Where are you? If you are in Christ, if you are part of this new humanity, transformed by his prayer at Gethsemane, transformed by his sacrifice on the cross, transformed by his resurrection. He is preparing 
a new garden for you. Scripture is an amazing book. You read it often enough and long enough, you realize how everything is connected in a perfect tapestry of meaning. And when you get to the last chapters of the Bible, and you go to Revelation, and you go to the last chapter of the book of Revelation, and you get to chapter 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, you see what the Lord has prepared for his people. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will need, they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is a foretaste, right? A foretaste, a vision. Just as Jesus got the preview of hell for us, we get the foretaste of heaven because of him. And if you are in Christ, I welcome you at this table. Because when we come to the table, what is it but not a foretaste of the feast we are to experience with him? What is it if not a reminder of his struggle, of his suffering, of his death for us and his new life that he is giving to us. If you are not in Christ, if you are still part of the old Adam's race, leave it. Get out and go to Jesus and embrace him and grab him by his feet like Mary did on that resurrection morning and serve him, and love him, and realize that he prayed in Gethsemane for you, and that he suffered on the cross for you, and that he rose from that garden grave for you, so you can be in his garden city with him forever. I will pray, and then as I'm done praying, you're welcome to come to any of these tables up front, or the tables set up on the balconies. Take communion right there or take it back to your seat if you need more time to meditate and of course if you can make your way forward just raise your hand and elder will bring communion to you and if you need to process anything that you have heard from the Lord this morning anything happening in your heart you just need somebody to pray with you Jillian and I and Paulina will be right there and we'd be happy to pray with you so let's pray together Father we praise you we praise you Lord for who you are what an amazing God you are. Trinity, three persons, and yet one nature. And what an amazing thing that you have done, that your son came and became human so he could be vulnerable, so he could be breakable, so he could be killable, 
so he could suffer. And we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. The two natures of Christ in one person. What a glorious view we get. We see him being a perfect human. We see him submitting to the will of God. We see him pursuing the mission of God, the Trinitarian explosion of love that led to the cross, that led to the empty garden tomb. We see it here, Lord. We understand it. But do we feel it? Do we really get it? May your Holy Spirit come and convince us of these truths. May he transform us. For those of us who have walked with you for many years, I pray for a renewed sense of intimacy with you, for a renewed sense of the horridness of sin and the glory of holiness. Let us repent. Let us confess. Let us be assured of your love. And let us be fully awake so we too can watch and pray and not succumb to temptation. And for those of us who are new to the gospel, maybe this is the first time we are hearing these words, let us see its glory. And let us see that it's for us, that this message of hope is for us. And we can trust you. We can entrust our whole being to you completely, and you will not fail us. So I pray for those who don't know you to meet you this morning and along with us to anticipate the beautiful garden that is coming down from heaven as part of the new Jerusalem where we will dwell with God forever working and worshiping and loving and serving all in harmony under God no sin no curse all finally good Thank you for that hope. Thank you for the foretaste, for the preview of glory that we know is only ours because you not only previewed hell, but you took it, the judgment of God on the cross for us. And as they were eating, Mark tells us, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So let's do it together in faith.